Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. So, welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, and today we're on our second leg of a conversation with Mr. Peter Salmon, who came on just the other week and had a very interesting conversation with the podcast about the uh, world of Jacques Derrida and assorted topics. We've managed to tie that into the world of Buddhism, which is in keeping with the theme of the podcast. And as we noted at the end of that conversation, it was so interesting and there was so much more to say, we decided to meet again. And here we are. Peter, how's it going today? Oh, it's going very well, thank you. And, and wonderful to be back. I, um, I realised as we were talking last time, we were getting towards the end, it was like, no, we've got so much more to talk about. So I was really, really pleased when you said, let's do this again. And, um, and yeah, so much more to talk about. Well, look, the first question I feel like asking is, what have you been reading since our last conversation? And has any of it been specific to some of the topics we picked up on? Yes and no. I mean, I'm going through a large... Gerald Manane phase at the moment. I don't know how many of your listeners may have heard of him. Um, he's an Australian novelist. And part of the reason I'm going through a large phase of his writing is I used to read him back in the 90s when he was out of print. And it almost became like this kind of samizdat um, of Gerald Manane. I, I literally remember photocopying one of his books and sending it to a, a friend in Queensland from Australia. Um, but recently, in the last couple of years, there's been this explosion of interest in his work. A, he's back in print. But B, um, his work is seen as right at the cutting edge of modernism and so forth. And so I'm rereading him with fresh eyes and, and, and part of me going to the rest of the world. I got to him first. I got to him first. You know, stop going on about him. But he's an incredibly fascinating writer. Um, and there, there are links here with Derrida in, in many ways um, in that he's very self-conscious about the fact that narrative and fiction is fiction. Um, he he sort of describes when I say there's someone walking down the street, that's not you're, you shouldn't bring to mind there's someone walking down the street. You should go, wow, in the mind of this writer, he is writing about someone walking down the street. Um, so the particular book I've been reading at the moment and rereading and rereading is called Landscape with Landscape, the title of which just sums up um, Monane's writing in, in so many ways. Um, and so it's a series of interconnected short stories, which makes it sound like all other books. It's not like all other books. It is a book where it will start with something. I am the writer who is writing this paragraph. Um, and this paragraph is me imagining the writer in 10 years time, thinking about the paragraph that he wrote, that sort of stuff. And it just builds and builds and builds. And it's quite complicated and, and exhausting in many ways. But I, I mean, I just think he's, I think he's the greatest living, living novelist. I'm going to put it out there. And if you haven't read Gerald Manane, turn off this podcast, go to the shop, buy some Gerald Manane, and then put this podcast back on in a few weeks time when you've gone through it that's my advice <laughs> wow well that, that was unexpected and quite out there but i'm sure okay <laughs> well, 
I, I have to say, I, I, I do like sharing my enthusiasm for him because I just remember so many times during the 90s when, his, because his work was so complex, it had gone out of print, me being the idiot at the pub, just going, you've got to read this guy. You've got to read, do you realise, you know, the, the greatest living novelist is, is just lives, you know, 10 miles down the street. Do you understand? So um, I'm, I'm going to continue to share that enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, look, I've been reading quite a bit since our last conversation. And uh, as I was suggesting before we started recording this, it's a minefield. I mean, you you just start going down the rabbit hole of of looking at uh, Jack Derrida and what goes on uh, around him at the time he was alive, but also what takes place uh, later on in his career as people start to pick up the, the ideas of deconstruction and start running with them. And it's amazing just how many people are still writing about the man today. I found various uh, texts and articles published recently, uh, one since our last conversation, which I'm going to speak about uh, to some degree. Uh, but John Gray gets in there as well. And I came across, uh, well, I guess it was a kind of review of your book, uh, as is often the way with John Gray, the, the Scottish philosopher. When he does a review, he ends up talking about a, a whole lot of other things and matters and topics yes. and picking up on some of his pet themes, one of them being the kind of deconstruction of humanism and liberalism. Mm. The title of his uh, review was Deconstructing Jackie. And there are a couple of things in there that we didn't talk about a lot last time, but they do seem to be part of the wider theme uh, that plays out about what took place after Derrida. Yes. And there are a few great lines in there. I've got one here that I want to read back to you. He says, uh, in defending Derrida against his critics, Salmon's book is a triumph. It is less successful in defending Derrida against his followers. I'm yes. sure you've heard that one before. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a second line as well, and then I'm going to, I'm going to bring it to this, this other text. Uh, denounced as a hater of truth, Derrida's crime was to illuminate the true nature of modern humanism as a hodgepodge of forgotten religion and metaphysics. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Just before we dig into a couple of those things, what do you think about John Gray? I mean, I really like the guy. I love the fact that he illuminates so many of our kind of collective assumptions in the West, especially if you're, you tend to be more left. Yeah. He gets stick for that, obviously. He has haters. But he's a highly intelligent guy, and he seems to be talking very much about our, our, our current moment. Thoughts? Well, the first thing to say is, is the slightly personal anecdote of the fact that um, he did review my book, and it was, in fact, the first review I got. Um, and as you can imagine, we've written a book about Derrida, and you find out a couple of weeks before the first review is going to be by John Gray. Um, first of all, you're kind of flattened by the fact that someone like him would be taking an interest in your book. But of course, then the second thought is, well, he's been quite trenchant in his criticism of some of the sort of postmodern deconstructive thinking. Um, so <laughs> I remember waking up that morning just thinking, please, 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 don't be too hard, don't be too hard, don't mm -hmm. be too hard. Um, and the fact that it was a positive review was just absolutely brilliant. So I like him very much now <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and will forever, will defend him forever. Mm. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about about John Gray is he is a philosopher of the now, as it were. Now, whether you agree with him or not, he is doing something which takes some courage, which is to comment as things happen. Um, and often that's, you know, squeezing his own concerns into a particular story. Um, and I disagree with him fundamentally about, you know, things like Brexit and, and so on. Um, but he is reporting from live. And I do think that's very interesting. Um, in, in terms of, you know, some of the content of what he, he said about the book, I mean, the, the first thing, as I think we did touch on last week, one of the things when I was writing the book was that I 
avoided Davidians as much as I possibly could mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. One is because the average Davidian is far brighter than me and far better, has far better knowledge of Derrida and, you know, can, can run circles around me. And um, that happened once or twice very early in the process and it was terrifying and I felt I couldn't write the book. So I had to take myself away from that and, you know, situate myself somewhere where I was I was basically starting from Derrida, you know, as, as though no one had ever heard of him. Um, but he does have followers. And I mean, they do get criticism. And I have sometimes joined in that criticism, because I think one of the things about Derrida, of course, is that he did what he did and was brilliant at it. I mean, he's a brilliant writer. He's, he's you know, one of the putting everything else aside. He's a very, very bright man. Um, and if you're in the university system and you, you you have had that illuminating Derridian moment of going, well, declarative statements you know, need to be put in quotation marks and so forth, and you've seen some of the puns that Derrida does, although Derrida himself said he doesn't pun as much as people thought, the temptation is just to follow that track. And this this is not new in philosophy. Of course, you know, if, if you go to any philosopher, take a Hegel, there's, there's you know, a load of crap written around Hegel <laughs> shortly after Hegel because they're trying to do Hegel and they don't have the they don't have the, the skills. Uh, we happen to be living in the moment where there's some people who um, have had the Derridian revelation who don't have the skills. But I think there's also a lot who do. And I think it's very easy to say, oh, you know, if you're Derrida, you're looking at the use of ceramics in uh, film from 1983 to 1986. And so that is, you know, absolutely useless work. Um, Scholarship has always been a lot of stuff that's really important and a lot of stuff that's really useless in the hope that some of that useless stuff suddenly reaches a tipping point or becomes unuseless. Um, and far better people using the Derridian tools and thinking things through than not, I think. You know, I think it, it is part of even anti-Derridian's toolkit now that they have to acknowledge some of his work. Um, I think there's an interesting thing happening in analytical philosophy at the moment where ideas of things like gender and race and so forth are creeping in and having to be dealt with. And that's, I'm not saying that's completely Derrida's work, but it does, this, this is the churn of the intellect, the churn of criticism, the churn of critique, isn't it? That you have these things going on and it's very easy to just stand back and say, well, get rid of all that nonsense. That nonsense has always been part of, part of what's going on in the academy and some of it's worked out well, some of it hasn't. Yeah, yeah, for sure. A couple of other lines that come from the text, which I think uh, are interesting. He acknowledges uh, the playful quality of Derrida's writing, which is something we touched on towards the end of our first conversation. Mm. One of the big issues there is that it's very easy for a lot of intellectuals to take themselves overly seriously and to kind of perform the idea of a role, right? So they take the identities that they're playing with or they're performing way too seriously. Yeah. And perhaps they even take the whole game they think they're playing you know, excessively seriously too. And that mm. playfulness, in a sense, is what allows the, the creativity to be there in actually taking a kind of deconstructive approach as an explorative practice, which, well, it may take you to places you, you don't know are going to be there. Whereas perhaps the, the problem with a lot of these adopters of something like deconstruction is a, they may not be up to the task, but B, they may yeah. be so caught up in the roles they're playing that they forget to actually deconstruct themselves, which is a point John Gray makes. And I think that's a general criticism I've had of a lot of, well, let's say 21st century liberal thought. And that's something, again, I want to repeat to listeners, I'm on the left and generally will continue to be. And because of that, I get most annoyed by the, the behavior of people who, in a sense, are a bit like me, I guess. But uh, yes. 
I think there's something to that. And I think one of the big paradoxes that John Gray picks up on a lot is that when you have a kind of network of philosophical insights that don't start with Derrida, but are, are very much integral with his own work, which undermine the whole idea of identity and take identity as performative. And then we live in an age where we kind of, in a paradox, we, we don't quite know what to do with identity. We've got this excess of fluid uh, fluidity and potential and choice and at the same time there's essentialism creeping in yeah that's fascinating for two reasons one because it's an opportunity i think to think far more deeply about what's going on in wider society like like john gray does but it's also just the same old games playing out again we've got the old essentialism relativism and philosophy just keeps repeating itself one thing that's interesting about Derrida and someone like uh, Francois Laruelle, who we may get on to talking about today, and I can't promise yeah. that, but we might, is that they are both, in a sense, trying not to slip back into the same old games, right? Yes. And in a sense, John Gray is acknowledging that some of those who think they're doing that are not. They're actually falling back yet again into the same old games of reproducing thought that's been going around for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Yeah, absolutely. I do think you know, Derrida was was particularly sharp on this to do with metaphysics, wasn't it? He sort yeah. of criticised Heidegger. Heidegger thought he'd gone beyond metaphysics. Derrida pointed out the ways he hadn't, and Derrida pointed out the way that he himself, Derrida, couldn't go beyond metaphysics. You know, that's that's not a possible task. Um, so there's that aspect of it that he was very aware of the history of philosophy, and that in a sense these questions are going to go round and round and round and round and round because you know no matter how much society changes, people changes, and so and so on, there are going to be things that wax and wane in philosophical thought, in cultural thought, in political thought. But a lot of what we are is going to stay similar, which is not to say that we are essentially the same thing. But you know if if we, we have similar days to people 500 years ago in, in lots of ways, so there will be similarities. Um, Derrida, I, I do think, did have a really interesting and fundamental insight in that he said that there was no centre that held things together. Um, as we'll discuss slightly later, there's a, there's a um, wonderful part of Buddhist thought that does that as well. Um, and for me, always with Derrida, the, where, where I think he's a genius is that he then takes that thought and runs with it. Um, a lot of philosophers throughout history, including Plato and, and, you know, and via Socrates, sort of say, there is this weird thing with language though, isn't there? That it doesn't quite work, that you know, it's, it's, you can't actually denote stuff and, and, and so on. And they, they mention the problem and then they just step around and continue to use language as though it functions properly. And that's, that's a huge part of you know, philosophy. There's, it's on page 74 of every book about language. Oh, it doesn't quite work, does it? But anyway, as I was saying, um, what Derrida didn't do was take that. He didn't go, okay, declarative sentences should be in quotation marks. He then put everything in quotation marks for the rest of his his writing. So I think that's a really interesting, and if I was to take one thing to say that Derrida is different from other philosophers up till then, that for me is it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the kind of essentialism identity debate, it is absolutely fascinating. And part of me enjoys standing back and just going, this is fascinating. Um, part of me has terrors that I'll get dragged in and be on the wrong side sort of thing because my mind changes again and again which is always a good thing in a time of churn I think Mm. but but particularly with identity it has become very difficult hasn't it That, that that there is a sense in which we are given freedom to choose our identity, but in a way that I, th- I don't think Derrida would have liked, to use a very soft philosophical term, 
this this idea where we're defined by our identity has become quite prevalent. Mm. Now, of course, even in saying that, I'm thinking, well, of course, if I'm a white heterosexual male, so I get to choose whether I'm defined by my identity or, or whatever. And, you know, if I'm if I'm you know, transgender or something like that, I, I, I have that imposed on me from outside all day, every day, you know, and, and I can't make the, the sort of neat choice. Oh, I don't think I'll think about, you know, being that today or being that identity today. So so it is politically imposed. I, I do think there is a problem where the identity that you take, you then sort of j just think that's entirely who you are um, because, you know, that's not entirely who you are. Again, as a white heterosexual male, I get to try on different hats more than other people. So, so that whole identity debate is playing out in really interesting ways, but often in quite vicious ways. And, and I, I guess one of the reasons that I, I even now I'm dancing from one foot to the other because, you know, in, in feminist terms, you know, I don't want to be essentialist, neither do I want to be non-essentialist. Both of those choices seem to me to be bad. Now, they're not choices that are imposed on me and that I have to make, as it were. You know, I, I like to think of myself as a feminist, but that's a woolly term <laughs> when I say it. Um, and I should be thinking about those two things through and I should be letting it challenge my identity. But ultimately, that's a debate that's going to be happening out there. And I don't know how it's resolved. And I, it, it, it's interesting, but it can get quite vicious, I think. Mm hmm. Well, that's that's for sure. Uh, the next person I'm going to talk about uh, is right in the middle of all that still. Um, mm. I would suggest this. I would suggest that there's a real lack of imagination and almost inte intellectual integrity in thinking critically about these themes. There's been a kind of straitjacket that's been put on a lot of these conversations through the excess of politicization. Yeah. I think that has a role, but, you know, whenever I hear um, activists saying, you know, everything's political, for example, mm. I just can't help but cringe because, yeah, sure, uh, everything's religious, everything's spiritual, everything's scientific. You know, you can go along a very, very long list. So yeah. the fact that you are saying everything's political is actually a form of performance. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's fine. But until you recognize that, you will probably identify with that. And it'll end up becoming a kind of moralistic crusade, which actually I think is counterproductive. Mm. I think there's also the history issue. I think a lot of people on the left in uh, Britain and America, they lost the war against neoliberalism and capitalism, and they kind of yeah. retreated into, let's say, these cultural uh, wars and identity battles, which were mm. far easier for them to win. Mm. Again, that's not a critique of that. It's just saying that there are kind of um, you know hidden agreements taking place, which actually prevent us from thinking more seriously about what's actually going on. Yeah. Uh, I think that's part of it too. There's also partly the struggle with the search for meaning and the difficulty to grasp that in a world of such intense and extreme change. So those are like three or four items which I think are fundamentally important for actually thinking critically about what's going on today. That's just the start. We could go for hours and just start listing mm. all of the issues that are kind of playing out in the background. And if you ignore them, then you kind of end up often in a cul-de-sac of performing what I think is a form of impoverished thought. Yeah. I'm also slightly suspicious of any claims to identity anywhere and always have been. So if you tell me, you know, you're a white heterosexual male and it, it equals X always, I would say, well, that always is problematic. Of course, I don't buy it. And, mm. you know, there are plenty of people who are, who are gay or black or female or even transgender who, who don't buy into the dominant narratives within their identity groups and probably don't want to be part of them. Absolutely. You know, we need them in the mix as well. So 
I wouldn't say a huge amount more than that because I don't want to get lost in the weeds with this. Yeah, absolutely. but you see, you probably see where I'm going a little bit with that. Of, of course, and you know, it's, it's not it's something I, I grapple with all the time. Of course, um, and you know, just declaring myself as that was, you know, in a sense, um, declaring my privilege that, that I can sort of. I, I think that white heterosexual males, and I'm going to use the term one one last time, uh, do have a particular advantage in our particular culture that they can step back from the culture wars and go, hang on, everybody, stop it, you know. Uh, whereas if you're enmeshed in it to a, to a greater degree, you you can't necessarily do that. Um, to bring it back to Derrida, though, I mean, one of the one of the things about Derrida where I think he would question some of the identity stuff that's going on is Derrida was really interested in singularity. Um, when 9-11 happened, he tried to write about it and semi-successfully, the, the particular article I'm thinking of, but he, I can't remember how many people died in that, but he, he was very much, every single one of these is an individual, and as soon as we make them a mass, then that traduces who they are. And I think this is exactly what you were saying about, you know, if you're part of an identity group, and I'm doing the Davidian fingers in the air when I say that, um, then, yeah, you, you can be made to think that you are something that you don't want to be that you that you have to be you know let's take a cliched example if you're gay you have to go to nightclubs and you know like sparkly things sort of thing um and which is you know a cliche from the past but you know it, it pertains and and you, you don't want to you just you, you know you want to have a nice cup of tea and you know chat about whatever um so that can happen and Derrida was very very interested in singularity as you would imagine because that's in a sense what all his all of his philosophical writing was about he was he was very cautious around around grouping things together because as soon as you did that compromises are being make, made and mistakes are being made whether that's about politics about words or about communities identities and so on mm -hmm. okay yeah good yeah i appreciate that and i think that would shock uh, quite a few of his critics you know uh, yeah. especially a couple we're going to mention next yeah absolutely and can i just can i just say one yeah, other go thing ahead. Sure. To, to be political about it the, when when I step back from all of this, um, the thing that always occurs to me, and I, I'm a person of the left too, particularly when it comes to culture wars, I think we also just have to have our antennae up for who this is suiting. You know, it, it has become such a part of the discourse. I mean, in the UK at the moment, it's it's almost so obvious that it's that's. I won't say funny, but even people who you know <laughs> don't share my politics are just kind of shrugging that you know any time that there's something important going on some more logs are thrown on the culture wars fire and to see people of the left squabbling amongst themselves suits people who aren't of the left and mm -hmm. i think we should always remember that that you know if we can keep the conversations going that's fine don't fall for the trap of thinking we shouldn't be having these conversations because you know some culture warrior from the other side of politics is saying oh look at those idiots <laughs> basically uh, yeah yeah, well, unfortunately, they are often right. Or I think the, the level of discourse is very often idiotic on the left. And I think a comment I made at the beginning when this all started, what, eight to ten years ago, I was looking at what was beginning to emerge and I just thought, okay, fine, that's interesting. But we need to do better, right? Yeah. We need to think better. We need to critique better. And we need to raise the level of discourse instead of turning it into a kind of politics of resentment, which is something... Yeah. certain elements on the right who who do at times critique quite well this new wave of, of left thought um they, they identified and they use that as a kind of uh general purpose critique of the left mm -hmm. and in their case maybe they just want to turn off those conversations and silence them there's certainly mm -hmm. I, I think some people who want to do that but i think they were also right and, I, and that's something i observed in my small world and just thought 
this is not going to end well. If this yeah. is the you know the new kind of political pursuit of the left, it's probably going to fail miserably. Yeah, and that's not good for anybody. No, right? absolutely not. But certainly, centralizing what were peripheral issues and turning them into the cross we're going to die on, I think, is a distraction from from far bigger issues. But I think one thing that comes up in what you said about uh, Derrida there as well, which I share, and which has meant that I like John Gray for the way he thinks, and I was an early critic of some of the new wave of thought on the left, is that I like positions which are anti-ideological, and I don't like conformity. Yes. And I think Derrida, in his slipperiness, uh, I think that slipperiness was often poorly translated or understood by his critics. But I think it's exactly that. It was struggling with the attempt of how, as you were suggesting before, do we engage with the, fun, you know, the sort of underlying issues, almost perennial issues, of these debates without turning that into a kind of aloofness? Yes. How do we be in the mix, but also not be you know, um, caught by it and wrapped up in it and lost in it? And suddenly we find ourselves in eight or nine or 10 years coming out the other side and saying, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's one of the areas I know you shouldn't um, conflate someone's life and their thought. It's one, one of the areas where I think Derrida, there was a real consistency there. And mm. consistency was criticized for a lot. Um, he wasn't very good at joining clubs, as it were. And sometimes those clubs were, you know, like communism and you know, Marxism. And um, when he was at university, um, there was a split between the Marxists and the Catholics and, and Derrida didn't want to join either. And throughout his entire life, he, he, that actual step of joining a political movement for instance, um, was one that he resisted. And, you know, Derrida in his philosophy is always about the moment before decision. You know, as soon as you make a decision, you've, you've done a, a, a type of violence, basically, in Derrida. So as soon as you impose a word on something, you've done it a violence because you've categorised it as a certain thing. Um, and as soon as you make the decision to join a political party or to, to be, be part of, you know, a, a particular social group, you've done a violence to yourself and by, you know, parts of yourself that you have to not, not therefore acknowledge. You've done a violence to the group by changing them. Um, so there was a real consistency there. And, you know, he, he was criticised throughout his life of not being politically active on the left. You know, he, he described himself as a man of the left by disposition. Um, but nothing there, nothing in his thinking really shows that or proves that. Um, so, so that was a very consistent thing about Derrida, that he's very interested in that moment before um you you commit and yeah some people have, have seen him as slippery for that yeah yeah it's interesting that word violence <laughs> right. i mean violence to what i mean uh it's a funny one and francois laruel picks up on that same idea i, I guess he took it from uh derrida mm. but this idea of you know the overburdening nature of ideological performance as an act of violence to some kind of uh what and the what is the problem, obviously, that uh, Derrida is also looking at, but uh, so is Nagarjuna, who we'll get on to. Yes. Before we do that, I want to talk about two more critics, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a phrase from Daniel Dennett, which I quite like, because I think it's uh, quite sweet almost. I appreciate his uh, <laughs> almost <laughs> naive take. But Daniel Dennett says, I think what the postmodernists did was truly evil. Yes. They are... <laughs> They are responsible for the intellectual fad that made it respectable to be cynical about truth, truth and facts. Okay, yeah, that's the first one. And why mention that? Well, partly because it's a great bridge between several figures. The first one I mentioned already was John Gray. The next one is Jordan Peterson. <laughs> right. <laughs> Look forward to that. I've got a story for listeners and for you, and it bridges really well to the article I've just read. Yeah. A friend of mine uh, surprised me last week. 
uh, by telling me that he had an extra ticket to go and see Jordan Peterson speak an hour away from my house. <laughs> <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to share a couple of things if you're, if you're sure. okay with that. And you can guess why I might do that, though, because he mentions Derrida. Yes. Yeah, he came up in the, the conversation, as did a comment from his wife. Look, I'll keep the story short because I don't want to make this about this, but you, you'll see the connection. So anyway, I ended up going. Um, it was kind of interesting. A friend of mine's uh, a real cool guy. So he bought tickets to be quite near the front. So when I got in there, I have to say, uh, it felt very odd. I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay. And my friend was uh, feeling the same way because it was like being at a huge Christian gathering right. in the Midwest of America. I thought he was going to come out and start preaching the Gospels or something. There were right. these massive screens. All of the lights were there. It was something between that and a kind of political campaign maybe for Donald Trump or something. And what was interesting was that his interlocutor was his wife. Right. Uh, so there was no one else uh, on stage, which seemed a bit suspicious. Um, and she started off by giving a bit of introduction, and she started talking about postmodernism immediately. And she suggested that postmodernism was actually an American phenomenon, and it came from Yale University. When Jordan got going, he basically answered questions from the, the public, and he started talking about Derrida. And what was interesting was really this, and this is the point I want to make. He spoke about Derrida in a very similar manner to Daniel Dennett. Yes. But then I would suggest he went on, and in a sense, he was actually performing certain ideas or thoughts that were actually very, very close to Derridian thought. Right. Which might sound strange, but that's what I heard. He started to deconstruct pop culture and academic culture, started to try to trace its roots, and started almost, in a sense, to de-essentialize some of the concepts and words that were going around. So I found it a very interesting paradox that he was both producing these broad critiques of postmodernism and Derrida and complaining about them, whilst almost engaging in forms of relativism and deconstruction. Yeah. Now, there it is. That's, that's the thing I wanted to share. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. And, and how does it end? Does it end with, a, with chanting and singing? or? <laughs> okay, well, it, there was both. Really? <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I'm not I was actually joking. Yeah, okay. I, I know you were, but uh, I'm, I'm slightly on. joking too. And I, I guess I'd like to say something a bit more significant about all this. But... Uh, it was his birthday, and so the, the, <laughs> the public decided to stand up and wish him happy birthday. That's, that's and they sang it, and then there was a very large clapping session at the end, which again seemed quite religious. Jordan Peterson, I think it's worth remembering that uh, he was once upon a time primarily um, a psychotherapist yeah. and worked with couples. And there are actually a couple of questions which he responded to, which were about couples, and they were really good. And I thought, mm. okay, this, is, this, is, this guy's actually pretty good at this kind of stuff. Yeah. But as soon as he goes outside that, he tends to get lost quite quickly. But he was picking up on big themes of meaning and the truth and, you know, where we're at with that today. And yeah, that leads us to where I actually want to go. As I was mentioning, I read a piece this week, and it was the last piece I read before getting to our conversation today, by Timothy Brennan. Does that ring a bell? No, it doesn't. I'm sorry. Okay, so uh, there's a text that was published on June the 3rd, and it was called What Was Deconstruction? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I, I, I saw this had been published. This was in the, the academic paper, wasn't it? It was in the Journal of Higher Education, That's I believe. Right, yeah. It's actually a kind of analysis of what comes after Derrida, and it looks at a book, which I wonder if you've read. It's by Gregory Jones Katz. 
and it's called Deconstruction, an American Institution. Right. Do you know about this? I know the title. I haven't read it, no. Okay, so I'm sorry to throw that at you, but again, we're getting to the kind of end yeah, of the circle I'm trying to paint, and I'm going somewhere with this. Um, Tammy Peterson made that claim about um, deconstruction being American. Yeah. My first thought was, well, that's, that's complete nonsense. But then when I read this um, review of the book, he basically argues for the fact that really it is. He writes mm-hmm. about how most of the, the intellectuals that picked up deconstruction and ran with it basically produce something that is far closer to an American intellectual tradition than mm-hmm. something French or even uh, European. Yeah. There are a couple of lines here that I can dig out. So um, in this text, basically he says that the book establishes that deconstruction was less a French invasion, as the media would have you believe, than an American invention, beginning with the recruitment of Derrida, who was lured to the United States only after his influence was beginning to wane in Europe, and after the French Minister of Education denied him a chair at the University of Paris-Nanterre. Final bit, as deconstruction developed over the 1980s and 1990s, its politics became harder and harder to read. For one thing, it was the brainchild of wildly different kinds of scholars. A literary romanticist, and Nietzschean, Deman, a phenomenological philosopher, Derrida, a socio-historical critic with our Bachian beginnings, Hartman, an influent theorist, Harold Bloom, a critic of authorial consciousness, Miller, and feminists with affiliations ranging from new historicism and Lacanian psychoanalysis to Marxism. What do you think about all that? Does that sound about right to you, or is this a kind of revelation coming at you? No, this is, um, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things to say about this. One is that Derrida himself at one point said deconstruction is America. Um, he he saw it as, you know, America was this kind of hotbed of ideas and hotbed of undermining or at least challenging um, ways that democracy and thought and liberalism and so forth had occurred throughout the history of philosophy and the history of everything, really, the history of culture. So he was very open to that idea that this was, you know, America as this this great churning beast which ate everything in its path, that, you know, deconstruction, which, you know, Derrida called parasitic sometimes, um, was, part, was part of that thinking. Um, I, the, the whole thing where he was lured to America after his thinking had begun going to wane, I hear that argument a lot, and it's not really true, um, but it's, it kind of suits a, a particular narrative. But I think the Yale School was incredibly influential, and the, the Yale School also transferred a lot of the, the sort of hardcore philosophical thinking to literary culture and, and therefore film and, and you know, gender studies and so forth. So I think it had a massive influence in that way. Um, the other reason it's, it's kind of on my radar is I recently wrote an article for Eon, um, uh, the online website, and it was about what happens after Derrida, since Derrida, or, or, or something like that. And I, I was sort of inspired by um, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, a speech he gave in, in 2019, 2020, something like that, um, about the invasion of ideas of identity and wokeness from America. And that, you know, this was a terrible blight on the on the French citizenship and that, you know, that citizenry meant that you, you didn't have an identity. You know, we, we know this, that, that in France, you know, you don't keep, you know, statistics about you know race and so forth. You are just a French citizen. And that this terrible American disease had come in and corrupted the whole system. Um, and it was 
basically Derrida and Foucault. And it was, you know, quite astonishing to see <laughs> that Derrida and Foucault were seen as these American figures coming into the French system. So it's a really interesting debate to be had about that, I think, um, that, that the influence of Derrida in the Anglosphere, and particularly in the American world, was incredibly powerful. There is a tendency, I think, when people do that to therefore downplay the effect he had on the French or the European systems, which actually, if you dig any you know, deeper, he's actually in, remains incredibly influential in people like Badiou and, and, and Laurel and so forth, um, who follow on from him and disagree with him wildly often, um, are still hugely influenced. I, I, I often compare this to, you know, Freud, that even if you're not a Freudian, you still have Freudian ideas in your toolkit, you know, the unconscious um, slips of the tongue and so forth. And I think Derrida still has that effect. So while I don't disagree that he was incredibly influential in America and that America was such fertile ground for his sort of thinking, I don't think you need to do the the, the kind of binary thing where that, that suddenly means that he was actually you know a bit washed up in, in Europe and therefore America took him on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense to to me too with my own reading of it. But I, I found it interesting that, that uh, serendipity almost of this time between <laughs> Tammy Peterson Yes. Um, this you know <laughs> philosophical professor and yeah. and that's partly why I started off to you know today just saying it's incredible just how alive Derrida is mm, you yeah. know he's he's so he's so present right yeah the thing with Peterson I do want to touch on this slightly because um I mean I Peterson disappoints me so consistently <laughs> and the reason for that is I think he is incredibly bright. And I think a lot of his early work is incredibly um, knowing and wise and interesting, not always correct, but interesting and, you know, incorrect in interesting ways. And there's this subtle moment, isn't there, that he becomes a cult-like figure. And I, I, I see exactly what you mean by, you know, by the sort of, if you've watched any YouTube videos, they are like a revivalist meeting sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who, who who wouldn't like people chanting your name and so forth? But the thinking seems to shut down. And what, what particularly frustrates me about Peterson is that he uses Derrida as this stalking horse. As you say, while again, he's now got Derrida as part of his toolkit, he, he deconstructs things. Mm-hmm. But he just won't read him. And it drives me nuts. Um, there's, you know, every time I hear Peterson speak about Derrida, he's just wrong. He's not, you know, saying it's bad for this reason, or he's not saying, you know, there's a problem with this. He just is talking about someone completely different. And that does happen with some of Derrida's critics. But Peterson's kind of that that sort of on, on, on rocket fuel. And um, there was a moment I was quite proud of, Stephen Fry, who's a, a cultural figure over, over here, and you, 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 everyone may have heard of Stephen Fry, is doing a, a, a one-to-one with Jordan Peterson and says to him at one point, have you, know, have you read Peter Salmon's book on Derrida? It might change your mind about him. Mm. Um, which, you know, I, I thought, ooh, that's great. But instantly, Peterson, who had been sort of going down that track, just changes the subject again. Mm-hmm. Now, partly mm-hmm. it was me going, oh, go on, read it, read it, mate. Come on, read it. <laughs> um, but it was also going, every time Derrida comes up as a thing to be talked about rather than just mm-hmm. a slogan to be waved, mm-hmm. he changes the subject. And, and I... My dream is to get Jordan Peterson, shut him in a room with a, something actually written by Derrida and say, read it. Can you just read it? If you don't like it, that's fine at the end of this process. But I just I can't find any evidence with him that he's actually read any Derrida. Um, and that's that's hugely disappointing because he may disagree with it or whatever, but at least he might have something cogent to say rather than this is evil. <laughs> mm and a couple of things you mentioned earlier, which, you know, are part of the common discourse these days, uh, come to mind immediately, which is it's better to maintain a narrative than actually go in and, and deconstruct your own narrative. Absolutely. Right? 
Yeah. So in that sense, I would actually say um, we could almost uh, posit the idea that Jordan Peterson and the people he's criti- uh, critiquing are actually caught up in similar forms of uh, problematic intellectual behavior, which is they're identifying with the narrative over the substance of the thing. Absolutely, yeah. And looking at the kinds of opportunities that engaging more seriously with thought might actually open up. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't even suggest that he actually reads Derrida. Sorry to say that. I mean, I <laughs> I agree with uh, Stephen Fry. I think it would be better to read your book for two reasons. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that to be nice or to, you know, stroke your ego. I'm saying it because, look, Jordan Peterson, sure, he's an intelligent guy, but I don't know how intelligent he is in terms of philosophy. Yeah, I think he'd be better served by reading a book which actually tells the story of the man as well as the thought that he engaged in. That's why I think your book's so good. Thank you. That's what would transform the thinking of someone like Jordan Peterson, because I think he is struggling, like so many public intellectuals. Mm. And you might not like me calling him that, but I I think he he certainly is a public intellectual. Yeah. And he's struggling with many things that are part of the themes we're all all caught up in today, right? What's his identity? Yeah. What does it mean to belong to something? What does it mean to make a commitment to an idea? or whatever you believe to be truth, or the ethical commitments that, that have to be made today in the great battles that are, that are underway. And he's certainly uh, absorbed into his kind of Judeo-Christian tradition, um, yeah. which I think uh, limits his thought as well as provides much of the, the fuel for his more, I won't call it extremist, but his more obsessive thought. And you know, on the one hand, he's he's actually doing something that many of us are struggling with today as well, which is looking at the meaning of life and what we do about religion, Yeah, which is something, of course, that Derrida uh, did at some point too. We'll, we'll get to that next, but let's move on, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Can I just say one other brief thing? Oh, if think, you must. <laughs> I, I think Peterson also does something which I think Macron did in his speech and so forth, which is to, to posit the idea that these debates about truth and identity and so forth are somehow new and that before Derrida mm. no one had, had occurred to no one to to debate what truth was or what <laughs> you know identity is and actually that's what philosophy's done for a couple of thousand years now so I just wanted to say <laughs> well that's a good point to finish on and that's probably symbolic of the naivety of much of the pseudo-intellectual thought that surrounds us today This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. 
If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy. Come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools. Well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. So look, we've done that. How about we talk a little bit about Nagarjuna? Yes, let's. Very exciting. This was something that we started to touch on last time. And yeah. you started by saying you found Nagarjuna's thought exciting. Start with that. Okay, I will. Um, I had not heard of him before you got in contact about the podcast. Um, I mean, I did a little bit of sort of Buddhism at university, that sort of thing. Um, and I wasn't familiar with his thought. And I, I, a couple of weeks ago, had a bit of a look into some of it. And yeah, fine, interesting, blah, blah, blah. This idea of emptiness, which seemed to me this, I was going to say an empty concept. Um, this kind of, uh, I was slightly resistant to this, this idea, because it to me, as a naive person looking at Buddhism from the outside, there, there sometimes does seem to be these these words like emptiness, where you're kind of supposed to gaze into the middle distance and think, oh, emptiness. And it just had that kind of feeling to me. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I, I hope that's not offensive anyway, but it, it's kind of that. It's probably good if it is offensive. We're quite happy to <laughs> yeah. do that kind of thing here. Well, I mean, it's with, with every religion, with every type of thinking, isn't it? But you, you're just sort of supposed to just nod and, and go, ah, oh, oh, I see. And um, of course, that was completely naive, having not read any Nagarjuna. And, um, and over the last couple of weeks, I've been reading a lot of him. And uh, for those who don't know, second century, um, we don't know anything about his life, really, as far as I can see, you know, various myths have attached to him, but nothing we can substantiate. Um, but he is Derrida. He is doing Derrida. And, and we, we just said it, didn't we? These, these questions of identity and truth and so forth, they're not new ideas. Um, as I'm reading him, it's, it's almost uncanny. You know, I'm, I, I'm really getting this uncanny feeling um, <laughs> because the word emptiness is difference. It just mm. is. 
<laughs> there's almost no spillage in either direction where, where they're not engaged. And in fact, to use the word emptiness, and I'm not sure what it is in the, the Sanskrit, um, is, uh, I, I think, does him an, an injustice um, because it, it does bring on this sort of, you know, nothingness and so forth. And and the whole of his thinking, as, as, I, as, as I'm starting to comprehend it, is, as you say, everything is constructed, you know. So, um, and I... I I've actually got some pull quotes from a book I've been reading it about it, and one of them says, all ideas are constructs dependent on other constructed things, which are themselves dependent on other constructed things. That's Derrida. That's Derrida 101, basically. Isn't it? <laughs> you know, that that, that you, you therefore deconstruct them, you know, that, that any, any word, any concept. And and the rigour of um, Nagarjuna's thought is, is, is pretty exhilarating. He, as far as I can see, will not accept anything as an object as a as a concept that is whole and of itself so even things like nirvana um samsara you know all of these terms he's saying that these are useful he calls them mundane truths so we have mundane truths in our world it is useful for us to know that a chair is a chair and you sit on it and it's not a table that's a that's a useful truth to know um it is useful perhaps if you're a buddhist to aspire towards nirvana Okay, that's a, a useful hold all for various concepts, you know, and it's a constructed term. But ultimately, it's not there. That none of these things are there, um, and we have these mundane truths that that we 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 put on things while we're in this existence, but 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 they are completely constructed by humans. Um, and I've just got one other another quote here that kind of links into that. Um, this is from a book called Emptiness, a Study in Religious Meaning, by the way, whose author doesn't appear on this page, so I'll have to look it up later. Um, for him, final answers were not to be found because there were no essential self-determined questions. Since there was no one-to-one -one correlation between concepts and their supposed reference, referent, R-E-F-E-R-E-N-T, -E -E the inquiry into the nature of things is endless. One can pile up or chain together inference upon inference, but this activity does not lead to ultimate truth, and it never will, because ultimate truth in this method of inquiry is imagined to be the last of a series. Ultimate truth, however, is not a fact about the absolute real or even intuitive knowledge of such a real. Such a thing does not exist ultimately. Now that, again, is just Derrida. I mean... <laughs> uh, you know, if Derrida had read that, he he would have had to scrap all his work and go, oh, it's, it's already been done. You know, and this 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 th these concepts that endlessly in a chain of inference generate themselves. Emptiness for Nagarjuna, difference for Derrida, is the thing that is not a concept, that is not an object, that is kind of in the interstices between these things that move these things around. That, that it's an active ingredient, as it were. Um, you could call it the trace in Derrida as well. That you can't actually hook onto anything here. And I just think it's absolutely fascinating that he is talking in exactly the same way about these things as Derrida would in a couple of thousand years' time, and looking for these gaps. Now, as I say, I think emptiness is an unuseful translation um, of the term that he's looking for, or maybe he just you know, that's all he could think of. Because because, you know, coming up with a word like difference is quite difficult. Um, but it's quite astonishing, the, the, the kind of correlation between these two things. Again, you know, it's funny uh, because the links are not just there. Um, there's a fundamental ethical question that always has to emerge when you have this kind of discussion, because otherwise, and, and this is a, a criticism that, that John Gray made, Derrida can end up becoming a new form of metaphysics himself. Oh, absolutely. And his followers, I think you could argue to some degree, have been engaging in that kind of practice. Mm. The ethical question, in a sense, is to what degree can you actually talk about all this without reproducing the problem? Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
And Buddhism has throughout its history, you know, an attempt also to respond to that question, because obviously Buddhism being a religion as well as a philosophy, it has an added element which to some degree may or may not be present within philosophy, but more often than not is not there or it can be excused away, which is what does it mean to turn this kind of observation or insight into a practice? What would that practice look like? What are the uh, ethical implications of doing so? Yeah, religion is 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 supposed to be transformative, isn't it? In in ways that you know philosophy is not necessarily. You know, that's one of the things. Exactly. Maybe it's just the priority of things, right? So if you look at Buddhism, the priority is going to be what do we do with this as a living practice? Yeah. Whereas philosophy is like what do we do about the thought, the ideas, and the impact this has on our intellectual traditions, but also the social reality within which we live. Mm. One of the ways I think about someone like Derrida, what he gives us that's more than we get than uh, from a figure like Nagarjuna or, or other thinkers that followed on from him, is that Derrida roots more fully his own deconstruction or his own you know, form of emptiness doctrine into the social world, yeah. right? So it's got a more historical basis to it, which means it's more applicable to the social world, and therefore it has more meaning in a sense in our social forms and in societies, since Buddhism and Hinduism and other exotic forms of uh, religious and spiritual practice came over to the West, they've tended to be a form of a world apart. Yes. So they haven't been engaged with the social world around us, and that's mm. changing slightly now. But therefore, you know, the idea of emptiness or the idea of an ethical practice of radical transformation ended up always being centered in on the individual, yes. right? Yeah. And Derrida was such a kind of uh, antidote to that kind of wrong thinking, in my view, mm. because he said, well, look, okay, you can look inside yourself or gaze into the horizon, as you suggested before, but what do you get? You're actually just kind of isolating yourself from the material reality of your own history, your own yeah. cultural th- roots, and all of the interdependence that makes up what it means to be a person in the world today. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, you know, navel gazing is is the obvious phrase for it, isn't it? You know, sure. We touched on this a little bit last week, uh, so last time we spoke, didn't we? Where you can very quickly go from sort of you know self identity and, and and that sort of thing to selfishness and solipsism, and that somehow the rules are for other people and not for you, and 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 you are you are the sovereign self, and 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 I think you know that that can happen in Buddhist thought, it can happen in any sort of thought, um, where therefore the social connections aren't aren't part of what you do. They're, and you know I think probably we've all experienced individuals like this, where somehow the social connections are beneath them. You know they they've seen some sort of light and they've gone beyond this and you know you, you idiots sort of following the rules and um uh <laughs> and and so on and and Derrida I think I think it was quite hard won his reconnection with the social um that people talk about an ethical turn in fact I talk about the ethical turn in the book um and I won't go back through all, all, all that we talk about in that but um but there were things like demand and you know the, the case of Heidegger um and various assaults on him personally um uh, not physical assaults but you know he suddenly becomes famous and people are saying well what, you know what are you doing about this what are you doing about that all of your friends are nazis and so on and he had to sort of turn outwards and certainly in the 80s and 90s he really started to write a lot more about ethical issues um he wrote a lot more about political issues because if it's true that deconstruction is everywhere then it has to be in those places and he was very aware of that now i'm not fully convinced he carried it off in 
a way that makes it I, I was saying before he described himself as a man of the left but he just described himself as that there's nothing particularly in his theories that 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 leads to that but mm. it is that relentless questioning of the social the relentless deconstructing of the social that he did engage in and i think i think it bruised him and i think it was hard for him and i think and, and as a biographer you become proud of some of the things your your subject did <laughs> um and that's the one thing I, I think i am most proud of him that he he really did shift what he was doing he said it was always there as part of, of deconstruction um but you know, and he just changed focus. Uh, but I do think the other the other particular thing that drove him in this, if we're again conflating the personal and the philosophical, was it seemed to me that friendship was in, hugely important to Derrida. Um, his most bruising encounters, for instance, when the man turned out to be a you know, sociopathic Nazi. Um, you know, when your best mate does that, it, it's 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 uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. It really sucks. Sucks. Um, and. The reason it was so bruising for him, and he wrote a defensive demand that was that was, that was rubbish, and then he, he pulled back from that, was it, it hurt the heart, the, the most important thing to him. Um, one of his books, Politics of Friendship, is a really, really interesting and crazy text, and I, I'd recommend it. If you, if you haven't read much Derrida and you're scared of him, um, Politics of Friendship makes no great sense in, in a coherent <laughs> way, um, but it's a series of essays on um, the... Aristotle says, Montaigne quotes Aristotle as having said, <laughs> having written, oh, my friend, there is no friend. And Derrida does a, a series of, of essays on this phrase, coming at it from every particular angle. But the main thing about it was he saw friendship as key. And he saw friendship key, not as just some nice thing, but... Derrida's ethics were always very close to Levinas. And as, as people listening may know, Levinas, for him, the, the whole of ethics was about the other, the, the, the face of the other. Um, if, if you look at the phenomenological world, we, we deal with trees in one way, we deal with chairs in another way, blue skies, blah, 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 and so on. That, those things impact us. The thing that impacts us differently from anything else in the phenomenological world is the face of the other. And it imposes all these all this morality on us and all these ethics and all these laws. And I don't think Derrida shifted too much from that. And you know, for him, friendship, so a face of another who you identify with and who supports you and who you support and who you have an exchange with, was fundamental to all of his ideas about the social and politics, I think. And 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 I, I think that's beautiful. I'm just going to put it like that. I think that that's a very beautiful part of his ethical thinking. Yeah, good. Can I ask you something about Nagarjuna, or Buddhism in, in particular? Because, I mean, the, the, the question I have is around samsara, um, which, as right. I understand it, is kind of the veil that, you know, everything's an illusion to some extent. Now, can we do that as a definition for now? Because Derrida wrote a lot about veils as well. There's, yeah. you know, there's, there's pieces he wrote called veils um that's torn away and we get enlightenment um which i think derrida would resist because that's a transcendental signified and mm -hmm. and one of the interesting things nagarjuna starts his text by saying there is no origination and no success cessation so no beginning no end and derrida wrote a lot about the task he he was always suspicious of origins he was always mm -hmm. suspicious of endings he thought we, we can never prove either we live within them and that seemed very close to this but but that that moment where we can see through it is not derrida's moment which i think is is a difference with what i'm reading about nagarjuna yeah well look one of the basic concepts we've been bringing to the podcast for the last uh, few years is this idea of the great feast which i think i mentioned last time mm. which is the idea of a, a kind of radical democracy it actually comes from francois laruel mm. and the democratization of thought is that you say i'm going to situate any kind of thinker or tradition 
the history of thought and the global nature of the different religious and philosophical traditions into a level playing field. Why mention that? Because within Buddhism, obviously, uh, it's a huge religion. Um, it's got lots of different traditions. Mm. It's got a very, very, very rich philosophical history, as, as you're starting to discover. Yes. And they often disagree with each other. Yeah. But if you were taking a kind of broad view, you might say that Buddhism historically and even today divides its ways of thinking about the world and categorizing them and labeling them into the maintenance of a tradition that always ends up in some kind of myth telling back to the Buddha. So it's a kind of almost eternal tradition that they're just going to carry on with. Um, the other way of looking at it is that every single thing is, is something called skillful means. Right. So a more practical, applied approach. So if you take a concept like samsara and you say, let's go for the doctrinal view, mm -hmm. then you have to choose a tradition. Right. And then you more or less will find some features in common. Yeah. Okay. And that's rooted in Hinduism and the, you know, the Indian worldview of the time. Mm. Skillful means, which I find much more interesting, which would be a more an ethical question. Yeah. Of what do we do with this concept? If you place that at the Great Feast, where you can talk about it in a number of ways. And I think that Nagarjuna, I think you can probably argue that he would say that samsara, in a sense, is a form of illusion. Yes, there is a veil, but the veil does not liberate you fully into something, some final ending, but mm. is rather a statement on absolute interdependence. Yeah. Okay. That's a pretty strong reading of Nagarjuna you can take. Just to go back to a question you had before, mm. I don't like the word emptiness either. It becomes a kind of reified object people speak about. Yep. You could actually translate it into a phrase, which might be something along the lines of uh, devoid of essence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, which is probably more interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, the, you know, the doctrine of, I wouldn't even call it a doctrine, but I would say the observation that there are no essences, which again is in keeping with um, Derrida, but also other thinkers, of course. They say the ethical product of all that is absolute interdependence. So, a way of thinking about samsara is that it's cyclical existence mm -hmm. and it's cyclical existence rooted in some fundamental forms of delusion or and illusion. Yes. And therefore the practice of engaging with this kind of pursuit of a, of a direct understanding of the non-existence of essence would be that that enables you to break through the cyclical nature of your emotional and psychological suffering, which is rooted in this idea of an essence somewhere. Right. Okay. Yeah. The added element of all of that is that there are all these phenomenological practices within Buddhism, yeah. which, you know, have turned into the kind of superficiality of mindfulness. But if we take them more rigorously, they're about both intellectual thought, okay, so using conceptual apparatus to break through these layers of confusion, mm. but they're also a kind of experiential practice, right, where you actually look at how you have certain feelings and emotions which cause you to grasp onto a kind of stable sense of me as Peter Salmon and mm. the projects I do as being stable and you having a past and a future. Mm. I mean, if you take the, these ideas seriously as a mature adult, right, they are deeply uncomfortable. They destabilize, mm. as deconstruction does, it destabilizes a text or a romantic notion of literature. If you take this stuff seriously, it destabilizes the kind of cozy senses or even dysfunctional senses that you kind of like, though, that are rooted in an idea of you being an essential person that exists somewhere. Yeah. Samsara, in a sense, is also, experientially, that experience of constantly trying to reproduce yourself or mm -hmm. hold on to an idea of yourself or hold on to certain types of feelings or emotions 
or avoid other ones. I've given a few different pieces there because it's so rich, but I don't know, I don't know if that helps and that's clear. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's, there's, a, there's a, a lot of stuff to un unpack there. I mean, that, that notion of destabilizing, again, we can draw you know, from the Western tradition, Freud, again, you know, the, the parallels between Freud and Derrida are, are interesting ones, I think, but, but psychoanalysis is a destabilization of the self, isn't it? It's, it's saying that, you know, consciousness is not necessarily, you're not in control of that. Um, but also that, that, that idea of interdependence of all things, and therefore, m making it part of practice to, to acknowledge that on a, on a daily and, you know, no, daily makes it sound like you go off and do it. You, this is what you should be doing. One thing that was really interesting, which I'm stumbling towards, was a lot of sort of phenomenological thinking when it talks about interdependence. It gets caught in this subject-object trap, doesn't it? It says, you know, mm -hmm. does the table exist if I'm not looking at it? Um, or is, is my looking at it, does it bring it into existence somehow? And it's something that Husserl grappled with. One of the really interesting things that I read in the Nagarjuna, and I, I can't get this out of my head, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it maps onto a bit of what you were saying was he talks about interdependence, but he talks about, he gives the example he gives is a verb. Uh, it's, a, it's a doing thing. He, he talks about the, the, the goer, the going, and the going to. So those three things, there is no going to without the goer. There is no going without the goer. So I find it really interesting. I haven't thought it through enough, and I, I, I'm, I'm beavering away at it. That here is an example of of trying to capture that 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 phenomenological problem, which is so often done with nouns and objects in the phenomenological tradition, and it's what I've always done. Um, and he's actually using verbs. So this perhaps is what you're talking about with the, the schoolful means for that that there is an action built into this, which I think Derrida perhaps does, and I'm going to reread a fair bit of Derrida on the basis of this, where it's actually action rather than objects that one mm -hmm. one should be analysing for their interdependence, which uh, is absolutely fascinating. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And in fact, um, one of the projects that. I've been involved in, I'm not the only one doing it, is actually what you've just been uh, speaking to, which is, okay, we know that language doesn't actually map onto reality, right? There's no direct correlation. What happens, though, to a practitioner of something like Buddhism if they don't realize that they are actually reproducing that trap, right, that linguistic trap, so they end up, you know, reifying everything? I think that that concept or that term reifying is very useful for describing why there's so much dysfunction everywhere, yeah. right? Even in traditions like Buddhism, which take very seriously the idea of, you know, sunyata or emptiness or the lack of an essence, they always end up reproducing these identities mm. that they perform. Yes. And the tradition starts to solidify and it has all these forms and figures and it ends up kind of fighting for its survival as if those things had to remain. Mm. So there's always that kind of contradiction within Buddhism itself too, just as there is within the thought and the practice of many of our Western philosophers and what they give to us. I said that to basically say, well, in observing that myself, I asked myself a number of questions. What do we do about language then? Because it's not enough just to say, okay, I understand emptiness, we're sorted. I've labeled that thing with a new term. Yes. <laughs> we're talking as if we know what we're talking about, but actually where's the transformation that you mentioned before, Yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a funny one because if you take language too seriously, you can end up performing a new kind of language game yeah exactly in the attempt to do something which is actually impossible yeah right yeah so what's the way of getting around that well look i found these process relational ontologies very very helpful right in thinking about this so 
A process relational ontology is what? It's a shift away from subject-object dichotomies. Mm. If you take that as a kind of language practice so that you can actually just at least think a bit more creatively about what's going on, then you have to do what you just said, which is turn all of these nouns into verbs. Yes. I did this experimental piece years ago, and I don't even know if it's any good anymore, <laughs> but I basically argued for that. I was like, well, look, you've got to start saying that there's not a self, but you engage in processes of selfing. Right, yes. Yep. And therefore, what you're doing is you're performing. You're performing the idea of being a something. Mm. Yeah. And if you look at it that way, you can actually more um, consciously and more easily unpack mm. that process that you're engaged in because the process is taking place always. Yeah. Right? You're not looking for a mystical, empty state. You're not looking for a, the true self, which you have to deconstruct even. The process is the practice because the process is always and forever taking place. Mm. So in a sense, consciousness or awareness becomes about whether you can actually relate to that openly and start to shift the way you live as a kind of radical experience mm. of process, mm. yeah. right? And yeah. then relationality. Yeah. Some meditators who take this stuff seriously come up against this at some point, and they often lack the language to actually talk about it, which again is another reason why the podcast does what it does. Mm -hmm. But it's like... If you can then have a conversation about your direct phenomenological subjective experience of this, and you have a language afterwards that you can run with, then that actually helps the process of the subjective experience that you've had. That is, it enables the transformation not to turn into yet another form of reification. Yeah. And Nagarjuna, bless his soul, <laughs> excuse the phrase, yes. Is such a good example of someone trying to do that constantly. Yeah. Right? He's rededicating himself to the practice of there is nothing but. He's always trying to avoid that but. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, you can, you can obviously then see the connections between Buddhist thinking and Heidegger, for instance. I mean, mm. Heidegger was all about, wasn't he, the process? And, and we, we shouldn't be talking about, you know, being is a verb, you know, being is becoming and, and so on. I mean, I don't think Heidegger was so good at rena relational things, um, but, but that, that constant notion of process. And also we have, we have thinkers like Zhuangzi in the Chinese tradition, that, that, that notion of process, which is, I, I mean, absolutely powerful. And, you know, also what you were talking about language, that, that fixing of concepts and so on. I mean, this is one of the things, and perhaps we'll end up getting back to, you know, Daniel Dennett here, um, the new atheists and so forth. I'll start at the other end. One of the powerful things I think about religious language is, isn't it, that it recognizes its metaphorical and rhetorical um, roots, uses, that it, that it is metaphor, that it is rhetoric in many ways, um, literature as well. Um, and Derrida would argue philosophy as well, but that, that's taking it a bit further than I want to go at the moment. Um, so so that, that, that power of language, in order to, to give truths, but, but, but not by necessarily fixing concepts. And one, one of the things that annoys me most about the new atheists, and Daniel Dennett would be included amongst them, is, is this idea that all religion is just you know, nonsense, that you know, it doesn't make any sense, that the words don't make sense. Um, and what I thought when you mentioned Dennett you were going to, to touch on was this idea of deepity. Um, I don't know if people know this, this idea, but he basically says, I think it's a great word, you know, it's a funny word, deepity, but he says that it's something that appears to be profound but actually isn't. The example, he well, he, he does it in two stages, something that, that is immediately true and you go, yes, that's true, and then as soon as you start to dig deeper, you realise it's nonsense. He uses the, the, the case, love is just a word. He says, 
saying that, you know, there is a truth to it because love is just a word. But as soon as you dig any deeper, it doesn't make sense. And he basically then says, you know, that most of the Derridian type thinking and postmodern thinking, these evil postmodernists, they're doing that. Um, the problem being, where do you draw the line? You know, is there any language that doesn't do that? Unless you're a hardcore early Wittgensteinian where language does map exactly onto the world, then all language has this metaphorical and rhetorical aspects to it. And, you know, as, as later Wittgenstein argued comprehensively, he was wrong to say that it mapped directly onto the world. And, you know, I, I do think this is this is one of the things about language that, that, that reification is to be avoided. And I think a lot of the analytic tradition thinks it can reify things. Um, whereas the Derridian tradition or the phenomenological tradition or the, you know, the Buddhist tradition you're talking about is saying you can't, as soon as you fix those concepts you're getting it wrong um and you, it, it seems to me slightly daft to use that english expression that in it as all of us live in this world where language changes over time, where where meaning changes over time, that people don't just step back and go, oh, it's not doing that thing that you know <laughs> daniel dennett would say that it's doing it's doing something far different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of counter examples this morning. I think I, I, I came up with this and I don't think I've read it. I think it was, but um, I think someone like Daniel Dennett would say something like mind is matter, you know, because they're saying there's no, no ooga booga. Going. Right. Yes. He's a hardcore materialist. Yeah, right? absolutely. So mind is matter. So we take that sentence and yes, mind is matter. You know, the, if you open the head, there's nothing else going on there, but mind also isn't matter, is it? There's a whole bunch of other stuff there that, that can't be caught, captured by the word matter. So if a very basic, phrase of Daniel Dennis like mind is matter is also deepity then you know what isn't deepity <laughs> in the end whoops you know, don't tell the man that you'll blow his mind <laughs> I, I, I wait I wait for his arguments I'm sure he'll tear me to pieces but it just seems to me that you know the the definition of deepity depends on you know sure you know anyway <laughs> you're right and I think that's another reason why um decent metaphors are really helpful in thinking creatively yeah. about all of this because yeah. You know, Daniel Dennett, just like Jordan Peterson, they're, they're swimming in the conditions of the social reality that we have constructed, yeah. in which, you know, you cannot put the, whatever, let's say the cat back in the bag. I mean, mm. postmodern thought or post-structuralist thought or whatever you want to call it or you don't want to call it or however you want to label it, produced a set of observations and understandings that undermined mm. the project of essentialism mm. yeah. and the inevitability of things and perennial truth and a whole long list of uh, assumptions about the world mm. that someone like Daniel Dennett is rooted in and, and striving to protect. And mm. I don't even feel like saying, oh, you've got to read Jacques Derrida or you've got to read Nagarjuna. Mm. It's like you, you've got to accept that your thoughts and your ideas are in relationship with a whole set of other ideas which you cannot ignore. Mm. Yep. You know, you have a kind of intellectual duty to, to look at them mm and not just co-opt them as the kind of bad guy in a narrative exactly. which you're trying to assert in Dennett's case uh, to what solidify his materialism. Yeah. I may disagree with you. I remember you talking about these new atheists in our last conversation. Right. When it comes to politics, I'm a bit of a realist, I guess. Mm. And I think that they were actually quite important in destabilizing the excess of reverence for the exotic other. And I think you can argue that there's some useful material within their their critique of religion mm. but i wouldn't get on board with their entire project at all and and uh, that's that's not for me but yeah i guess i'm just cautious you you said you know he's just wrong <laughs> <laughs> as soon as somebody says that i know and i'm being slippery but uh, you know <laughs> part of me just wants to say okay i'm curious immediately how is he not wrong right yes right? yeah 
and how might you be slipping into kind of reifying their position in your absolutely your well that's that's exactly what i was trying to do i made that bold statement so that you would think about it uh, ah there <laughs> you go you're a very clever man peter yeah, <laughs> terrible terrible trap but no you're right i mean uh, one of the frustrations of, of the current time is and i think it's shared by both sides is jordan peterson will use the word derrida as, as a flag to wave around and you know i do engage with a lot of people who take analytic philosophy and just say well this is you know all all completely wrong and and they haven't read any. And I do mm. think there is a duty to to engage with the the thinkers you don't agree with um, to see what they're doing. You know, I, I, I've had this conversation recently. It's been really interesting. Um, a guy called Christoph Scheringer, who's writing a book about the analytic philosophers, and you know, it will be fascinating. And, and if you can talk to him, it'd be great. But um, uh, there's a lot of political stuff going on. You know, they were they were emigres in the 1950s. There were there were reasons. You know, this doesn't absolutely sum up why they they went down the track they did. But politics, they just want to get away from for a bit. So so the the analytic world where you're just dealing with logic was attractive um, in many ways. And they you know they, were, they they had their own individual tragedies. They had their own. They they also thought they'd solved. The, the, the whole problem of philosophy, which would be exhilarating and, and so on. They're not just idiots who are just going, oh, you know, uh, we have to just rely on logical propositions, you know. They, they, they you know, the Frankfurt School and, and so on kind of thought they, they, they'd solved something and they were, you know, excited by, by that thinking. And therefore, just to say, well, analytic stuff is just dry and stupid and boring is wrong. <laughs> and I will say wrong in this case. <laughs> Well, that's a wrong position to adopt, and I think it lacks uh, respect, humanity, and appreciation for the struggles. Mm. If you speak to certain philosophers, they'll say, oh, continental philosophy, that's not a thing, mm. right? Where do the boundaries lie? And you, well, okay, we can do the same thing with the analytical tradition, yeah. especially because we started out today by saying that some claim that Derrida is actually an American phenomenon. Yeah. Okay, well, that kind of already automatically discounts that kind of mm. easy separation a very, very complex historical phenomenon into two easy camps, which you can argue to and from. I just think it's um, it's a kind of reproduction of playground politics. It's yes. infantile and we can do better. But one of the things about the Cambridge letter that was written to stop Derrida getting his doctorate, um, <laughs> right, yeah. signed by a motley crew of non-philosophers, um, basically, and, and Quine, <laughs> non-philosophers and Quine, um, there was this, this thing, and, and it does irritate me, um, that they they basically say Derrida's not a philosopher and that he's just, you know, he's doing rubbish, shouldn't get a doctorate. Um, but they say he uses terms like logical fallacies and fallacy is spelled like, you know, fallacy is spelled like phallus. And he, he doesn't. And whenever I read that letter, I think these, with the views that these people have, they could pick up any book of Derrida's, pick any page and find a phrase to beat him with. Okay. Um, and the fact that they use logical fallacies, which isn't one he actually used, just means they didn't read him. They literally didn't read him. And they made a kind of sniggering staff room joke about the sort of thing Derrida might say. And that, that letter constantly disappoints me because to me it just it is proof that they, they wouldn't engage with the work and therefore it, it almost deconstructs itself that, that letter you know we're saying that his work is no good but we haven't read him <laughs> and I think that's you know that's a, a tendency to do that you know and we all do that but we, we don't often get it published in the Times <laughs> <laughs> Well you know uh, I guess a comment that could be made from a good Buddhist would be that the reason all of that happens is because they are holding on to these ideas of themselves and the social structures mm. that they're part of 
as being somehow eternal or on the side of good uh, and therefore unchanging. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 can I, and can I just say that that, that that this is also one of the starts of the myth that Derrida's not read in in France. The letter also says something like, you know, French philosophers hold him in contempt or something. Or you know, blah, blah. none of the signatories of the um the letter are French philosophers, um, because <laughs> no French philosopher actually thought that. So it was it was part of that myth building that we were we were touching on earlier. <laughs> Good. I'd like to say one more uh, thing about Nagarjuna. Yes, please. Okay, and then I'd like to finish up a couple of concepts that we didn't get round to from Derrida last time. There's this um, sentence I've got in front of me, and your suspicion about the word emptiness is spot on, I think. Let me read you this. It says, we state that conditioned origination is emptiness. It is mere designation depending on something, and it is the middle path. Since nothing has arisen without depending on something, there is nothing that is not emptiness. Mm. A phrase like there is nothing that is not empty or emptiness is so confusing. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, what do you do with that? But if you were to change it to that phrase I, I threw at you, right, mm. which is condition origination lacks any independent existence, mm. right, or is devoid of essence, mm. and there is nothing that is not devoid of essence, mm. that shift already Absolutely. becomes more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because it becomes, instead of a thing, a kind of recognition of an absence. Yeah. And as you can imagine, talking about a recognition of absence brings us nicely back to Derrida. Well, one of the things, because I, I, I started by reading the Nagarjuna in that translation and was, mm. and was as I say, feeling slightly, you know, well, whatever. But I'd like to pay a compliment. I've just gone to the front of this book now. Frederick J. String, who wrote this book in there, <laughs> I think it's, it's one of those beautifully sort of mannered 1960s uh, texts um, called Emptiness... Um, emptiness, a study in religious meaning by Frederick J. String. And it's great because it, it really does do what exactly what you were just doing then. It, it says, you know, that we have to really be better at understanding this concept. It's not just emptiness, this reified notion of nothing there, but it's, it's, it's what you're talking about, you know, that, that it has this, this other meaning. And, 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 and the other, the other problematic phrase I, I find in there is middle path, middle way. Now, I know this mm -hmm. is an important part of Buddhist thinking, but I think for Western tradition, and you may disagree with this completely, um, it, it, it's easy to get that confused with the kind of Aristotelian, the middle way, the, the moderation, the sort of, you know, not, not being extreme at either end, which it doesn't really seem to mean. You're being very shrewd about, you know, what stands out as problematic, and mm -hmm. we're problematizing these things. Yeah, yeah. The middle way, again, is a reified concept very often in the West for the exact same reasons we spoke about before and that you're, you are rightly suspicious of. It becomes a kind of thing that people aspire to and it exists somewhere, right? It's an idealization and then it becomes reified and what is it? The middle way, you can rephrase it, you can just say, how do I explore thought and reach conclusions that do not slip back into nihilism and eternalism? Right. So if you were to take it as, again, a kind of ethical practice or epistemological practice and not be something that's ontological at all it's actually a form of discipline right yeah yeah then it turns into a kind of nice new age you know way of avoiding all extremes and never getting upset and never yeah. being worried or bothered by anything yeah. right it's a kind of malformed equanimity that's <laughs> such a great phrase i'm just writing that down malformed equanimity i'm gonna nick that thank you go on go for it <laughs> I think that kind of captures, yet again, a kind of subtle attempt to, to grasp at something, right? To, to find comfort on the way, whereas both Derrida and Nagarjuna are arguing for what does it mean to be groundless? Mm. 
Yeah. Right. What does it mean to give up, really give up and commit to giving up and commit to recognizing and analyzing and deconstructing all of the inevitable little, you know, emotional, psychological and social urges that we always have that are unconscious, mm. to mention Freud again, mm. that want us to keep grasping onto something, yes. to always look for a stable forever ground. Yeah. But there's a problem there too, because that in itself, if you, if you take what I've just said seriously, I think it would be very easy for a lot of people to end up doing exactly what the middle way, in a sense, is trying to point to what we shouldn't be doing. You become nihilistic, yeah. you become cynical yeah. about the possibility of even existing. Yeah, absolutely. Or you grasp at emptiness yet again as this kind of eternal ground. And that's groundless. That's what they've told me in the good Buddhist book. Mm. Therefore, I'm sure that's not yet another ground. But of course, yeah. it turns out to be one. Yes, yeah. So the middle way, if we tie it to a kind of epistemological project, and if we take it as a kind of discipline, I think automatically it becomes a more interesting form of practice. Absolutely. And, and, and again, we, we can touch on Derrida here, that Derrida was always, always, always arguing that he was not nihilistic in his thinking, um, that, you know, that there was nothing, it wasn't nihilism. And I don't, I don't have the passage in front of me, but you know, he basically sets out his terms. And, and, and again, that hooks into what Nagarjuna is saying because Nagarjuna also does a very similar thing there you know there are passages where he says I'm not a nihilist <laughs> can everyone stop saying I'm a nihilist <laughs> it's really important you understand that <laughs> I'm paraphrasing of course <laughs> sure although I find it really interesting and this is I guess my perverse intellectual curiosity mm -hmm. but I like engaging with people who are convinced that Nagarjuna is a nihilist right yeah <laughs> because from a practical perspective it shows you what happens when you take thought mm like really far in a certain direction, which of course is what's happening with a lot of those thinkers we mentioned before in the analytic tradition. Yeah. Or if we go back to someone like Bertrand Russell, you know, and his Principe di Mathematica. Mm. What a great project. We should be grateful for the fact mm. they pushed mm. that search for an essential ground for mathematics. Yeah. And they didn't find one. Yeah. And they wrote how many words, yeah, you know? Absolutely. And somebody could say, well, you, you know, you effed up. Yeah. You wasted your entire life. No, they did a great service absolutely. to humanity. Yeah, absolutely. We should be grateful to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't even get me started on the, the late 19th century crisis of mathematics. I got obsessed with that for a while. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> I hope I'm being clear in pointing to, you know, the kind of creative potential of thinking about the thought of someone like Nagarjuna, but also not being timid in engaging with it and pulling apart. Yeah, absolutely. And saying, my intuition about that smells fishy, that suspect, yeah. Yeah. is always the right way to go in thinking absolutely. about these often sacred concepts. And yeah. of course, as you well know, we, we have the sacred within religion and we have that within buddhism and tibetan buddhists will often be really protective of nargajuna you know it's ours mm. of course the same thing happens in philosophy too and uh it's an obstacle yeah absolutely i, I was remembering the other day it was in a conversation with someone that the extraordinary power i felt the first time i wrote is that true in the margin and i know i know it was kant i was reading i was reading kant Fantastic. and kant was just going along and saying these you know, wonderful, crazy things about well, whatever categorical imperative or something. I said, hang on, is that true? And um, <laughs> I think that's, that's it. It's, you've, you've got to do that, don't you? you otherwise, you just carry it along in the tide. So, yeah. <laughs> the, the final point we might make here, another reason for approaching thought through the person, right, and not as an abstraction mm. or even through their work, and you, you may disagree with that, but for non-philosophers, I think it's so fundamental to get in touch with the humanity mm. that produces the thought we're engaging with. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something we don't get from these hagiographic readings of someone like Nagarjuna. Mm, that's right. Or the Buddha. We yeah. just don't know. We don't, we don't have the humanity. We have stories about the sacred and we have stories about humanity. Mm. 
And then we have kind of Western progressive interpretations of the humanity of what they imagine to have been in the figure of the Buddha in something like, mm. you know, atheistic or pragmatic dharma. Mm. I think we, we should be grateful because once you see the humanity in a figure like Derrida, mm. or even in Wittgenstein, who was such a weirdo, yes. but his struggles were real. And if you read his biography, you're like, my God, this poor man, you know? Yeah, it yeah. can't have been easy being him. And yeah. he really did. <laughs> or, or being his friend. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. So yeah, or his boyfriend or whatever, but it's fine too. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's like, that's what reminds us that Nagarjuna, whether you want to think of him as the second Buddha or something, he was human first, and his struggles to make sense and avoid those extremes were human. Yeah. And we can participate within that kind of practice too. Absolutely. And that's what saves us, I often think, from the identity politics, from the kind of social formation into the club that Derrida wanted to avoid, or becoming a good Buddhist. It's connect to the humanity. The humanity is, is universal to our species. Yeah. It doesn't have any kind of eternal thing. It's material. Okay, Daniel Dennett, be happy. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what saves us from all of these excesses of abstracting out all these big ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think we discussed this last time, didn't we? It was, it was something I really wanted to do with Derrida. I, I wanted to imagine he gets up in the morning, has a cup of coffee, he doesn't sit to his desk and go, okay, what do I reckon about film? Or what do I reckon about this? Or whatever. Because, you know, he's thinking it through. And it, it, it does make me think of, do you remember there was a show called Northern Exposure? Back in the yeah, I do, yeah, I do, I do. Yeah. And I don't remember very much about it, but for some reason, the um, what was her name, Janine Turner? I can't remember the character's name. There was a Janine in it. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Either she or the or the main man were. I can't remember anything about the plot, but they end up being in a prison, and Freud keeps appearing to them. You know, I, I don't know how they got to this point in the, in the book, <laughs> but at one point the, the character is raging at Freud, saying, "You know, you made me think this about my mother, you think this about that, and my unconscious, and, blah, 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 and I'm just going mad." And um, and Freud just shrugs and says, "It's only a theory," and I just think that was great. <laughs> and part of me just goes, with, "You know, I can just imagine Derrida doing that. Well, it's only a theory." <laughs> Yeah, and that's a powerful phrase, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. It robs the kind of social structures around the obsession with a thinker yeah. or an idea, almost obsolete immediately. Yeah. They lose their power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, fascinating. <laughs> well, the final thing I'd say about Nargajuna, uh, before we move back to Derrida more concretely, is that there is this idea that comes up as part of the middle way, which you hinted at, which is conventional and non-conventional. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the second element that can save us from the excesses of obsession with certain kinds of practice of thought. You can't get away from one if you've got the other. So there's this notion of two truths. Mm. So whenever we speak about the whole, the absolute, the complete and the total, it always has to partner up with the relative, the contained mm. and the contextual. Mm. And that's, again, a practice item, right? So it's not an ontological statement, mm. although many Buddhists even fall into that trap too that's helpful for avoiding the laziness of, of someone like Daniel Dennett or Jordan Peterson or these Derridians that uh, John Gray complains about too. Mm. It's always adding a but or an and. The last guy I interviewed after I spoke to you was Jason M. Wirth, who's a, a Zen priest and a philosopher. The title of his book is Nietzsche and Other Buddhas. Mm. When I asked him about the title, he focused in on and, which was a surprise. Right, yes. And he was like, you know, the most interesting bit of the title, of course, is and. And I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> but afterwards, I thought about it and I thought, well, actually, my and would probably would have been a but. Right. Yeah. There is no there is no absolute essence in anything but. Yes. Yep. But we experience it as such. So what do we do with that? Yeah. Yep. Or uh, Daniel Dennett's wrong, but. Yeah. 
what is he pointing to that we might want to consider to? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and that's kind of the theme of the conversation today. Fantastic. Yeah, right? exactly. And I mean, just two things on that. Um, uh, Derrida loved the word and, um, and famously when he, he wrote a, a book about the law um, and he, it was a conference called um, Deconstruction and the Law. Um, and he said, well, what is this and doing? Is it saying that they're separate things? Are they engaged with each other? And, and so that, that was his kind of take on and. As soon as you stick an and in, you're saying that things are joined together, but also they're, they're different things. But also, of course, if we're talking titles, my book is called An Event Perhaps. And um, I mean, the word perhaps, which I, I riff on towards the end of the book, because Derrida often riffed on the word perhaps, um, the title is taken from the style of his Baltimore speech, where he says, an event perhaps has happened in the history of philosophy. And you know, perhaps was a very, very important word to Derrida. Um, Politics of Friendship, the book I mentioned before, there was a lot about perhaps. So that is that is the but, isn't it? Look, it's only a theory, and perhaps it's right, but. <laughs> so there's that, that constant calling into question and and again not making that declarative statement and not saying that other points of view might be right you know I, I, perhaps, perhaps i'm right perhaps democracy will come perhaps this perhaps that but always perhaps yeah great i, I sort of recognized that observation uh, after a couple of years on twitter and i wrote at one point twitter would be much better off if everybody could start hedging their phrases <laughs> it just seemed apparent that everybody was almost reinforcing these identities through twitter and through social media by squeezing in these affirmations, mm. because a good affirmation is dramatic. Yes. It asserts a certain position. It sounds potent and powerful. And it's almost great to just say, I am this. Yes. This is that. <laughs> There's a certain confidence that it betroves onto the, the speaker. Yeah. And I just thought if we could take all of Twitter and just say, it might be the case that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, it could be true that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we probably destroy the culture war in and after that. Right, absolutely. And, <laughs> and just to declare my own genius for a moment, I've just found the section in my book which talks about the hat, perhaps. And in fact, it's Derrida's genius because he points, he calls it the dangerous perhaps, which I think is exactly what we've been talking about, isn't it? To sort of throwing mm -hmm. things up in the air and just, you know, the perhaps that, that, that doesn't lock things in. It, it reintroduces this critical thinking and takes us somewhere else. So, um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good. Well, at least we've done something useful on the podcast. We've confirmed you and I are, are geniuses. Yeah, that's right. Good, excellent job done. <laughs> Took us nearly two hours to do so, but <laughs> please send money to us uh, right now. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> something like that. Um, silliness aside, let's go back to Derrida. Duck. Um, the two ones I, I want to just go through because they're brilliant and they've been the the basis for uh, many creative projects, especially the first one. Hauntology yes. is the word. The second one is spectrality, yeah. and hauntology is a play on ontology, and it provides a kind of mirror to it. But even just the concept of haunting, the idea of possession, of ghosts, of things lingering, uh, of existing but not existing, of, of being part of our imagination, all play into, I think, the utility of this concept, hauntology. And spectrality, the idea of the spectre, the, the thing, again, being some kind of disembodied possession. Mm. Why don't you do this? Why don't you start off with hauntology? Uh, give us a bit of uh, an explanation of, of, of what it is, and why it's a useful concept today, and then do the same with spectrality. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm going to start at the other end, only because it's in the book Spectres of Marx that Derrida first uses the word ontology. Um, and in the French in particular, it's much closer to the pronunciation of ontology, much like difference. Okay. Derrida wanted you to have to read it because, you know, Derrida's always wanting the written word rather than the spoken word um, for reasons I think mm -hmm. we've discussed. Um, so, so in Spectres of Marx, he... he 
he only briefly touches on hauntology and it's more taken up and run with later but but the idea of the spectre is something that returns um so it's 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 an empty it's an emptiness that word again um it's a thing that's not there as opposed to ontology which is the collection of things that are this is the collection of things that are not um and in the particular book on 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 marx which i i, th I think is probably derrida's most accessible brilliant book um i, mean, I think it's up there with of great well, is not accessible specters of marx is a great great book um and he talks about the way that he, it's written at the fall of the berlin wall so there's great western triumphalism um and derrida who's been accused for 20 30 years of not engaging with marx decides this is the moment to start talking about marx when you know communism has fallen which is a very deridian thing to do um, so he talks about the way that this idea of Marx and communism and the threat thereof, according to Western liberalism, will keep coming back, will keep coming back, will keep coming back, will haunt us. But it's always there. So so when you're reading, to take his examples, books like Fukuyama's um, End of History, and it's saying that the West has triumphed, you don't have the West has triumphed, that you don't have that phrase unless there's an ace that's failed. Um, so this is still underlying things. And I, I actually think this this phrase and this idea has become more and more powerful um, since, you know, since Derrida and you know, in the last few years. In fact, I think a lot of what happens with Derrida being accused of being a cultural Marxist or, you know, he is sort of the spectre returning. The spectre of Derrida keeps returning and returning and returning. Um, they can't put him down. Um, so he's very interested in those ideas of, of ghosts. And sometimes this is a very practical idea of ghosts. You know, the, the world we inhabit is mostly being created by dead people, you know, all the people in the past. You know, it's a very mundane example of hauntology, but, you know, the, the whole of history that we're living in, that we're thrown in, to use the Heideggerian term, that all comes from these ghosts of the past who keep returning. And we were talking a bit about this before. We went with these ideas in philosophy that keep coming back, that keep coming back, that keep coming back, um, that they're always there somewhere again like in Nagarjuna they're between the words between the concepts um, and we can't escape them and we think we can escape them and again to touch on Freud it's very much like this return of the, the repressed you know we, we, we I think we're reasonably comfortable with that idea in Freud aren't we that you know what I'm saying now or what, what we're saying in day-to-day -day life there's often unconscious stuff going on in the background and what Derrida is saying in, in, in a way is that when you're writing philosophy there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on in the background. There, there's the people who came before you. There's concepts you're not touching on. You know, there are trends in philosophy, and there can only be trends if there's stuff that's not being talked about at particular times and stuff that suddenly needs to be talked about um, again. So so this is part of hauntology. Um, people since then have used it a lot. Um, in one particular thing is you have hauntological music. Um, people might be familiar with people like the caretaker or burial, where they take found objects from the past, like cassettes or music from another room or static and so forth, to, to give this kind of haunting quality to their music. Because the other thing that Derrida talks about in this, and I think this is really interesting, is futures that never happened. Um, that all of us throughout our life have this kind of vision of a future which may or may not occur. And if it doesn't occur, we, we still have that information within us. Um, we still refer to it in some sense. Um, the big one for Derrida is democracy. We, 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 democracy is always about to happen. It's, it's soon. Soon we will have democracy. Mm -hmm. um, Leonard Cohen has that song about it, you know, democracy is coming to the USA. And democracy is never actually here. And But the sustaining 
it, but it has a sustaining structure. It is a ghost, as it were, of democracy. We also sometimes look back and say, oh, yes, just after the French Revolution or just, you know, just before the Russian Revolution went crazy, there was pure democracy and pure freedom. Again, that's a myth. So it's a sustaining myth. So there is very interested in looking at these things in the same way that Freud would say what you're talking about, what you're doing. There's ghosts there, um, the spectral. Um, Derrida is also very, very interested in that, that, that in all of our discourse, there's the unsaid things, there's, there's, there's the, you know, the, the ghosts, the spectres that keep returning and that are influencing us you know, at every moment. Yeah, that's good. And you, you got me thinking about a few things. One is this very difficult relationship we have with history in the past in the West. It's interesting to think about the downturn of uh, the popularity of ancestor worship. Mm across the globe. It, it still holds out in certain corners, but in the West, it's something we've almost given up mm. on. It's like we're uncomfortable with a, identifying our debt to history. Yes. Um, there's a sentence that I'll, I'll read back to you from your book, which I really like. It says, one must stop believing that the dead are just the departed and that the departed do nothing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> was that me or Derrida? I can't remember who that was, but that's, uh, it's it's both of you. Um, <laughs> plus, it follows up with another sentence, which is packed with uh, potential meaning. One must stop pretending to know what is meant by to die, and especially by dying. Yeah. I think that ties in so well with this nostalgia for the future, right? Or nostalgia for futures that were lost. Because I think you could argue that this is actually what identity politics is performing in many ways. It's a kind of form of grief about the, the lost potential for many of the grand left-wing projects that, you know, I would still like to invest in, mm, yeah. right? Greater economic equality and so forth. But it, in a sense, it could be the kind of struggling with that. Yeah. I'm also fascinated by just how many of our cultural products today in 2000, you know, and, and 22 are still an attempt to escape our animal mm. roots, which will, will bridge us to the next point. I mean, if you look at Silicon Valley, you know, the whole life online and digital uh, I don't know what to call it, actually. I wanted to say digital supremacism. And yeah. in, a, in a sense, I guess that would work because it is a kind of another expression of this deeply rooted transcendental desire, which, which captures the Western imagination. Mm. Let's escape the material. Let's escape it yeah. all into some kind of formless future where all of our historic problems uh, of inequality uh, will be gone, and I guess at that point we we could probably just avoid looking at the environment. As yeah, well. absolutely. Yeah, and 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 I mean, as you may know, Derrida wrote a lot about. He wrote a book called "The Animal That Therefore I Am," um, and also his last lectures, second last lectures, were called "The Beast and the Sovereign," um, and it was really exploring. Um, if if you it's not lectures, seminars. If you ever want to sort of read some uh, Derrida with his kind of belt unbuckled and feet up on the desk sort of stuff, his seminars are really interesting in that way. Real explorations of, of these sort of things. But yeah, looking at the way that the, the the beast within us and you know that the animal within us is repressed, is put away, and what that means and how we do it and what the way we do it means for us as well. And, and yeah, he saw this kind of, we were supposed to go into this floating zone where, where there's no physicality anymore. And I, I, I do think some of the kind of rise of populism and so forth, and I know everything is, yeah, it's quite, the rise of populism is blamed for everything, but that in a sense is, is part of the beast coming back, isn't it? You know, it, it is the physical suffering that people are having where they don't have enough food, they don't have shelter and so on coming back uh, and saying to the liberalism we've been talking about, well, hang on, <laughs> it's lovely for you, you know, sitting there with your new iPod and, and doing all of this stuff, but I'm hungry. 
Um, mm. And I think Derrida was very aware of that. And I think his writings about animals are, are, are very interesting. Um, and for precisely that reason, he was trying to come back to the fact that we are animals in in very major ways. Um, and the other thing, just just while I think of it, you were talking about the, the you know the dead, the dying, the, the ghosts, and so forth. Derrida wrote a well, there was a series of essays collected called Works of Mourning um, of Derrida, which was basically him him saying goodbye to friends and, and you know what he was saying at graves and so forth. Um, the actual French term is, and I'm going to get this slightly wrong, something each one an individual totally different or, or something like that, so much more Derridian. Um, but the phrase Works of Mourning was a, a Derridian phrase for that mourning is not is not something that doesn't happen and it's not something that's just easy or it's not something you can you can sort of put in a box and again like freud mourning is work and that you have to go through this work and it is a task like we were saying right at the start you know it, there's no beginning or end to it that you can identify the work of mourning is something that one does as an individual about other individuals who one knows who have who have passed but it's also part of what society has to do. It has to have these works of mourning. And we sometimes do that through religious rit rit rituals. But often we don't. There are, there are things that, particularly at the moment, you know, everything's happening so fast. Uh, let's take a very obvious example, the Ukrainian war, which is now moving down the news, isn't it? Um, but when do, we, when do we mourn that? And if we don't mourn that... Um, what then happens? Where does that repressed non-mourning go? And, I, you know, I think that's a really interesting part of Derrida's thinking. Interesting. Again, there are two potential directions that could be taken, but I want to stay disciplined. We've been at this a while now. <laughs> but look, Derrida did write about the beast and the sovereign. Mm. The beast is a fascinating word. It's so loaded with additional meaning, some of it negative. Mm. But I think our animality is something that can save us mm. from our silly games. Yeah. And Derrida also wrote a couple of other lines. One I'm going to read back to you. Again, is it you or is it Derrida? I wrote this a while back. We are one now, Derrida. I think he thought that too. Very good. You wrote, man calls himself man only by drawing limits and excluding his other from the supplementarity. The purity of nature, of animality, primitivism, childhood, madness and divinity. I wrote this question. This was actually for our first talk and I kind of throw it at you, but we might co-construct something. What are we to do with this kind of observation? Oh, that's the question, is it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was the question. That's, right. that's quite a question. Well, let's start with what Derrida is, is trying to do there, because I think that he's, that sort of stuff is from the animal that therefore I am. And he's looking at the, yeah. the sort of Kantian idea of humans. And humans are different from animals because we have the ability to reason, for instance. Um, having then decided that, Kant then says there's a whole bunch of stuff that's different and, and draws the limits. And I think one of the, we were talking about, you were talking about the environment before, one of the tragedies and the unfolding tragedies of the environment is we do see ourselves as outside of the environment, don't we? We see ourselves as over and above it. Even some of the talk about solutions to environmental problems, um, even by committed environmental people, it's humans will somehow solve this. Um, and, and while there is validity in that, perhaps, hopefully, um, it also sees us as, as unique and sovereign uh, rather than one of the beasts. And the mistake has been made, and I, I think Heidegger is particularly good in this, isn't he, in, in saying that technology takes over and we, and, we, and we cease to be a part of our lived environment. And yet on a day-to-day -day basis, we actually are part of our lived environment. We are, we are affected by the things around us in you know, many, many ways, positive, negative, neutral, whatever. But it's always going on. And it's been one of the tricks of 
our thinking, hasn't it, to, 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 to step outside of that. You know, that, you know, Descartes separates the mind and body and we can't get them back together. Um, and for Derrida, uh, he, he's attempting to get those things back together. Now, the Beast and the Sovereign, as I said, it's, it's kind of feet on the desk stuff. He's, he, he's exploring from every possible angle. He's not coming up with a prescription. He's describing this process that humans have done and saying, I, you know, fairly obviously, we are animals. So what are we going to do about that? Um, and so I, I do have to give the example that he, that he gives, that um, he talks about getting out of the shower and he's naked and his cat sees him. Now, there's only him and the cat there, and yet he feels shame. And he feels that instant <laughs> connection. And what does it mean to feel that? We can't say that we are different beasts to these. If a, if a cat looking at you can cause you to feel ashamed. Um, and yet we constantly do that on a day-to-day -day basis, don't we? We extract us from, from our environment. Um, and, and that has led to some very, very difficult and dangerous um, uh, situations, not just what might happen you know environmentally in the future but on a day-to-day -day basis we, we we don't think of ourselves back into that world where actually we belong yes and that's probably a good point for us to to wind this up on uh what can we do apart from finish up uh with a final question along the lines of what's next for mr salmon um i am currently writing a biography of another thinker am i going to say who it is i think i will i'm, I'm working on simone Weil at the moment um hmm. the reason i'm uh sort of being slightly cautious about saying it is i'm really grappling with her um <laughs> and I, I without sort of giving any spoilers um her thinking and my thinking are very different and um i don't know how much you and your listeners might know about simone Weil, but absolutely fascinating thinker absolutely different to Derrida you know absolutely believed in a truth capital T truth a god and quite problematic in lots of ways and she's keeping me awake at night basically trying to <laughs> figure out how to do her justice um like we were talking about with, with language before that philosophers on page 74 will you know um say language doesn't work and then keep writing language there's always a section in any simone Weil biography where they say how irritating she is and um <laughs> how she you know this this and this is just uh, uh. um and so you know I'm, I'm having to delve quite deeply into her and i'm interested myself in where i'll go with it because i don't quite know at the moment and any suggestions no, I was going to say any suggestions gratefully received. No, stay away from me. I'm, I've, I've got to be alone <laughs> with her for a bit longer and try and work out what, what to say. Um, yeah. But yeah, she's getting under my skin, which is, is, is the first step. <laughs> That's great. Uh, isn't it wonderful, though, when that happens, when, when a, a thinker manages to engage you so fully? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, she is engaging me. But yeah, we, we're, we're having constant arguments at the moment. So I will win because I get the final word, of course, but, um, but she's, <laughs> <laughs> she's not making it easy for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like a second marriage at this point. It, it is a bit. Yes. Yeah. The, the difficult second mm. album as well. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely said. Well, look, Peter, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Francois Laroel remains in the distance. I'm afraid we didn't manage him. Yeah. Oh, well. But it was, it's been really good talking to you and I've enjoyed our conversation and thank you for giving up your Brilliant. time. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Cheers.